Welcome to the show. I am eating a breakfast burrito. <laughs> mm. In my book, this is a glorious start to the show. So, I have, by popular demand, I have Bernie Sanders ripping Fox News a new butthole. That was so glorious to watch. I think he basically uh he basically did the best he could do. Like that was just wins across the board. So we're gonna talk about that in a little bit. I also have Bernie Sanders tax returns. As predicted, nothing at all to see. Um we got Tulsi Gabbard in today's show, Andrew Yang in today's show. Um the the centrist cabal the active conspiracy that's working against Bernie Sanders from some dishonest actors in the Democratic Party. You're not going to want to miss that. Oh, shit, my hair's all fucked up. I hate when that happens. Here I am trying to do a show, and uh, I'm not pretty enough, bro. Come on, man. Get your shit together. I literally am reaching over and whipping out a comb. (laughs) Classic. All right. Hmm. There we go. Perfect. Um, And then later on in today's show, we got some more uh, throwback secular talk energy coming at you. Because we have um, some insane religious uh, conservatives, some televangelists making fools of themselves. I got a a couple different stories like that. And then wait until you hear uh, how giant corporations are getting away with murder in in the Trump administration. 
there are so many like major massive corporations paying nothing nothing they're paying nothing in federal federal tax so it's really crazy but anyway mm. one more bite of the burrito before we dive in you know what i'm saying mm. delicious hashtag big burrito sellout that is so good <laughs> All right, now one sip of Big Seltzer and then we're off. <laughs> These companies couldn't pay for better product placement, and I'm not even getting paid. It's fucked up. Okay. That was tasty. Off we go. Starting with Daddy Bernie's tax returns. So America's dad, Bernie Sanders, released his tax returns, and as predicted, uh, nobody cares, and nothing's in them. (laughs) So there were all these giant conspiracy theories that centrist Democrats were trotting out, but what's he hiding? He hasn't released his tax returns yet. And he's like, he said it a bunch of times already, he's like, I don't know if you noticed, but it was Hillary Clinton who got the nomination last time, so I didn't make it to the general so I didn't, like, it didn't even cross my mind to release my tax returns. Um, but okay, if you guys want me to release it, even though it's still the primary, I guess since I'm a front runner, why not? Okay. And so he releases his tax returns, and there were all these like, oh, I wonder what he's hiding. He's got to be hiding something, right? It's got to be. It's got to be something. Bernie Sanders is the poorest member of the Senate, and he's been for uh, 812 years. I believe he's been in office in one position or another since the days of Ulysses S. Grant. So (laughs) there's, I mean, like, what do you expect? What do you expect? Do you expect him to have like $5 million in income every year or something? Because I got news for you. Usually that's what you're going to see if you look at like, you know, Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton or the people who were politicians who then decide... I'm going to cash in doing some Wall Street speeches, bitch. Show up once, get $400,000. I mean, think about that, man. You do just three speeches, you're already over a million dollars in income. So that's what those characters do. Everybody knows that's not Bernie Sanders. Everybody knows he's not looking to, like, cash in. So, And also, he is still in office. So, I mean, even if you wanted to, it would be a little bit different when you're in office. But he doesn't want to. Everybody knows that. So why are we pretending? Like, why... The idea that they ever wanted to float that conspiracy, and then now that the tax returns are released, they're all like, shh, you don't hear any of the people that were, uh, you know, coming up with these conspiracies weighing in on it now, because there's nothing to see. So this is in Axios. They say, Senator Bernie Bernie Sanders on Monday released 10 years of his tax returns, fulfilling his promise to release the long-awaited disclosure on tax day. The filings show he has made $1.7 million in the two years after running for president. Quote, These tax returns show that our family has been fortunate. I am very grateful for that as I grew up in a family that lived paycheck to paycheck and I know the stress of economic insecurity. That is why I strive every day to ensure every American has the basic necessities of life, including a livable wage, decent housing, health care, and retirement security. I consider paying more in taxes as my income rose to be both an obligation and an investment in our country. I will continue to fight 
to make our tax system more progressive so that our country has the resources to guarantee the American dream to all people. Okay, so that's the statement he released with it. Now let's get to the specific numbers. Take a look. In 2009, he made $314,000. 2010 was 321. $211,000. $2011,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000,000
So that's not like the effective rate would probably be closer to 45%. So like so many of the arguments against Bernie, against Justice Democrats, against the left, they just stem from a, a fundamental misunderstanding or a fundamental ignorance of what we're actually saying. Now, and by the way, it's not like Bernie would not be in favor of raising his taxes at all. His effective tax rate at the end of the day was 26%. That's him actively trying to pay every penny in taxes he could. So what he wants is to, yes, raise his bracket, but that's not even the, the, the most important part. The most important part is to make the income tax system more progressive. So right now, the top bracket, I think, kicks in at $400,000 a year. Uh, like I'm pretty sure that's when the, the uh, 35% top marginal tax bracket kicks in. Why not have another bracket for a million dollars in income and above per year? Why not have another bracket for $5 million in income and above per year? Why not have another bracket for um, $10 million in income and above per year? Why not make it steeply more progressive? So in other words, why not keep the taxes for the middle class and the poor the same, or if anything, lower them, and then upper middle class, you keep it the same or you can kick it up a little bit, and then have more brackets that progressively get higher and higher, because that's a, a wonderful way to make sure we offer people equal opportunity by taking that money and reinvesting it into equal opportunity for everybody through you know, universal health care and universal education and, and uh, a jobs program and things of that nature. So, yes, everybody's in favor of redistribution of wealth to one extent or another. The question is, where do you draw the line? And how much should it be that, uh, you know, people at the top are paying in taxes? And what exactly should that be reinvested in at the bottom? But everybody believes in redistribution of wealth. Literally, the police department is funded by redistribution of wealth because it's funded by taxes. You know, um, infrastructure is funded by redistribution of wealth. Very few people, only a tiny, tiny fringe of the hardcore libertarians are in favor of, like, privatizing all of our infrastructure. So everybody's in favor of it. It's just where do we draw the lines? And obviously, given the fact that, you know, over half of Americans make $30,000 a year or less, and people at the top are getting fantastically wealthy off everybody else, like, yeah, it's time to make the system a hell of a lot more rational and reasonable and logical and to actually provide people that equal opportunity. So Bernie Sanders would raise his own taxes. Now, would he be um, paying that uh, top marginal rate of 70%? And by the way, we'll get to his Fox News town hall in a little bit, and they tried to grill him on that as if it's like some sort of a gotcha. And he's like, no, like I never even said that. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez never even said that. Nobody said if you make, what did he make this year? Let's look again, uh, $561,000. Nobody said if you make $561,000, the government comes and takes 70% of your money. No, that's for $10 million in income and above, and it's every dollar above the $10 million line. So no, the idea is like, oh, well, are you going to pay 70% of that? Nobody ever said he should do that. So what the fuck, like, again, it all stems from they strawman your position and then they play gotcha-ism with that. Like, aha, you believe this. Now are you going to hold that? Are you going to hold yourself to that? Well, no, I don't actually believe that. So no, why would I hold myself to that? That doesn't make any sense. Like, what do you, you make up our position and then you grill us in accordance with the position you just made up for us. So Bernie Sanders would raise his own taxes. He wouldn't raise it all the way up to the 70% number because that's not, he's nowhere near what that, when that bracket would kick in. Um, and again, it's just, a, it's just a, 
a debate about where the lines are. And people on the right and the centrist Democrats try to pretend like the left is incredibly unreasonable, when in reality, what we're calling for is actually much more uh, in a line with the rest of the industrialized world, where they have more progressive uh, tax brackets. They do a more intelligent version of redistribution of wealth, where you actually give people equal opportunity, and you can fund things like paid maternity leave and paid vacation time and universal health care and universal college and things like that. So there is no gotcha here. There is no gotcha. There is no like, aha, we got it. Bernie Sanders is is a massive hypocrite. No, he's not a hypocrite at all. He's clear about what his beliefs are. He is willing to raise his own taxes. But even with that, it's not this caricature that you've made of it that he should somehow give like, you know, like, why don't you give enough to make yourself poor? Because he never said that he's against all people being rich. What he's against is the rigging of the system by the top 1% and giant multinational corporations where they rig the rules against average people in favor of themselves. So, I mean, that's what he's against. It's to say, hey, I don't think Wall Street should have gotten that bailout. I don't think these people um, who bankrupted their companies and tanked the world economy should be getting bonuses hey, I think maybe if somebody's making $100 million a year, that's a little excessive. Those things are not the same thing as saying, I'm against all wealth, full stop. (laughs) But there's this sloppy thinking that people do where they think that's like what's being said, and it's just not. In the confines of a social democratic system, which is what Bernie Sanders ultimately wants, that doesn't mean nobody can be rich. And if you think that that is what it means, man, are you a sucker and you've fallen for some insane propaganda, both from the far right and from centrist Democrats, who have no real response to the likes of Bernie Sanders. So let me close out this segment by repeating that Russell Brand quote one more time, because it's so true. He says, when I was poor and I, and I talked about income inequality, they called me bitter. Now that I'm rich and I talk about income inequality, they call me a hypocrite. It's almost like they just don't want me to talk about that. Yeah, what else can you say about it? If it came out that Bernie Sanders, well, in no, in no scenario would they say he's not wealthy. Because even if, even if Jane made no money, even if he made no money on top of his salary as a senator, it'd still be $174,000 a year, which they would say, aha, that's a lot. Hypocrite. Well, no, let's say for argument's sake, somehow he, he said, I don't even want my salary or whatever. Crazy. But let's say he said that. Um, and he made... He was pulling in 40k a year, let's say. They would turn around and they would say, ah, see, that's why he wants to raise the taxes on the rich. He's, he's got no money. <laughs> so no matter what, they were going to do, aha. No matter what, they were going to come up with something to say, aha. No, Bernie Sanders is consistent. I'm not surprised by any of these numbers. I'm not offended by any of these numbers. Bernie Sanders did, did not rig the economy and screw over regular people. Bernie Sanders wants to unrig the economy. So all this nonsense is just noise. And by the way, now it's, it's gone already because there really is nothing there. Even though they tried to make it a thing like, oh, what's in there? Even though they tried to do that so, so much, it ultimately fell flat because every, everybody's real reaction in their heart of hearts was the same, which is, eh, whatever.
Okay. Now, now we get on to um, a segment which all of you are going to enjoy so much. Oh, I fucked up. I fucked up. I went to the wrong graphic. Okay, here we go. Bernie Sanders absolutely obliterates Fox News hosts on Medicare for All. So a few days ago now, Bernie Sanders went on Fox News. Um, we discussed how people were, some centrist Democrats were going after him for this. And I came out here and said, no, don't go after him for this. It's a great idea. And his whole point is to try to spread left ideas and change minds and get people to agree with us. And, and very positive things can happen as a result of it, even though he goes into it knowing that the hosts are not honest actors and they're smear merchants and they're going to say stupid things. Um, well, now you see the wisdom in Bernie going on Fox News. You're going to see it clear as day. So this is when they went back and forth on the issue of Medicare for All. I'm going to show you the full part where they talk about that. Some people are just clipping out the part where the audience cheers for it, a Fox News audience cheering for Medicare for All. That's in this clip, but I also want to show you the stuff he said before it and after it, because I think it's all important in context, because he knocked this out of the park. And the bottom line is, the Fox News hosts were simply unprepared to deal with somebody who knows what they're talking about. So let's take a look, and then we'll come back and discuss. My question is, why do you believe that the government can provide better health care than the private sector, and why should people who like their plans be forced to switch? Okay. Um, first of all, let's be clear what we mean by Medicare for all, okay? Medicare is a government-run program for seniors, which is widely popular and quite effective. Uh, in 1965, when Lyndon Johnson passed that bill, it was called by some Republicans, socialism and everything else. But you go to the average senior and you say, how do you feel about Medicare? And they will tell you that they will oppose any Republican effort to cut Medicare. And by the way, in Trump's budget, he has proposed an $845 billion cut over a 10-year period to Medicare, which seniors don't want. So to answer your question, we are not talking about government-run health care. The Veterans Administration and most veterans think that that's a pretty good health care system. Talk to the American Legion of the VFW. They strongly defend the uh, veterans' uh, health care. That's government-run. What we are talking about is simply a single-payer insurance program, which means that you will have a card which has Medicare on it. You'll go to any doctor that you want. You'll go to any hospital that you want. And by the way, millions of people today are in networks which prevent them from doing this. So this gives you freedom of choice with regard to the doctors you go to or the hospitals you go to. But here's the main point when we talk about healthcare. Currently, right now, we got 30 million people, zero health insurance, and many of you and tens of millions of Americans are underinsured with high deductibles and copayments. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. So what happens is there are estimates that some 30,000 Americans die every single year because they don't go to the doctor when they should. All right? Meanwhile, we pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. 
One out of five Americans are getting ripped off by the drug companies who make billions in profits while charging us the highest prices in the world. And on top of all of that, we spend twice as much per capita on health care as do the people of any other nation. So the question that I throw back to you, do you think it makes sense to spend twice as much per capita as the people of any other nation and be the only country on, in the world not to guarantee health care for all people? Um, this, audience, this audience has a lot of Democrats in it. It has uh, Republicans, independents, Democratic socialists, conservatives. Uh, I want to ask the audience a question, if you could raise your hand here. A show of hands of how many people get their insurance from work, private insurance, right now. How many get it from private insurance? Okay. Now, of those, how many are willing to transition to what the senator says, a government-run system? There's 180 million people on private insurance. All right, let's see what that And they, question. they would be lost, right, well, right. to a, your right. system. Okay. question. Okay. Question. Good, thank and you. I know it's what the right wing throws out, so let me answer it. All right? <laughs> Millions of people every single year lose their health insurance. You know why? They get fired or they quit and they go to another employer. I was a mayor for eight years. You know what I did? What probably every mayor in America does is you look around for the best insurance program, the most cost effective insurance. You change insurance. Every year, millions of workers wake up in the morning and their employer has changed the insurance that they have. Maybe they like the doctors that people are nodding their heads, okay? So this is not new every year. Now what we're talking about actually is stability, that when you have a Medicare for all, it is there now and will be there in the future. Recently, um, Aetna merged with CVS, you may recall that, big merger, which in my view will drive healthcare costs up. The gentleman who was head of uh, Aetna, a name Mr. Bertolini, you know what he got for putting together that merger? He got a $500 million bonus. Do you think that's how we should spend health care no, dollars? I mean, I think everybody is in agreement that health care needs to be fixed in this country. The question is how. And my question to you was it, it will drive up taxes to pay for health care. And not just the wealthy will pay for that. The middle class right. will also okay. pay for it. Very good. So how do you justify it? And All right, Martha, what are you not including in your discussion? You tell me. I will tell you. You're not going to pay any health insurance premiums. You're going to pay one way or the other. But look, Martha, you're pay one way or the other. Martha. Whether it's in your income oh. tax or your payroll tax. Right. Your tax. Look, health care is not free. You never heard me suggest that we're going to match. You just said it was going to be free for everyone. It's going to be free at the point of when you use it. Okay? In you go to, why are you so shocked by this? Because someone's going to pay. Somebody is going to pay. Who are they? Who okay. 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 One minute. One second. Okay. Right. I'm going to talk to you. We'll be talking. Please. We'll get through this it's together. It's a common question. Okay. We had, okay. So, we right, had so many email questions. Okay. Ask Senator Sanders how he is fair going enough. to pay. Fair enough. I got it. It's a fair question. But the first thing, let's just say hypothetically. Okay. You're, uh, you are um, self-employed and you have, you've got a husband and two kids. Okay? Family of four. Do you know how much that family is paying today for health care? How much? $28,000 a year. Okay. All right, we're spending $11,000 per person. We are saying to that family of four, you ain't going to pay that $28,000. you are not paying any more premiums. You're not paying any more co-payments. You're not paying any more deductibles. How's that? $28,000 you are not paying. But does that mean you're not going to pay something? Of course it does. You're going to pay more in taxes. And do members of Congress who now have gold-plated health insurance? No, we don't. Well, they have a special plan that's outside Obamacare. Uh, 
a different plan. You know, do member of, members of Congress, are they going to do that transition as well? Damn right. Of course. Of course. Why would you suggest otherwise? So I, I want to make the point. I want to get back to the point that the Martha raised. Look, health care costs money. Every other country, or virtually every country, does it in the same way we do education for our kids. Okay, when a kid walks into school, kid doesn't have to take out a credit card, right? It's paid for out of public funds. That's what most countries do. So if you're asking me, if your question is a fair question, are people going to pay more in taxes? Yes. But at the end of the day, the overwhelming majority of people are going to end up paying less for health care because they're not paying premiums, co-payments, and deductibles. What I'm perpetually amazed by is that the Fox News hosts have their own bubble, this right-wing Republican talking point bubble, and they are so deep in that bubble and now so married to the sound of their own voices that they are genuinely unaware of the very easy and simple counter-arguments to their shitty points. This reminds me of an old debate I saw. It was, um, I think it was Sean Hannity and Christopher Hitchens, and they were talking about the death of one of the evangelical mega-pastors. And Hannity said something like, it's just a really silly argument. And Hitchens said, you give me the terrible impression of somebody who's never read a counter-argument to the things you say. And that's what I got here. It's like, Bernie has just basic, empirically correct responses to their objections. But they state the objections as if it's like, well, you obviously are not going to be able to respond to this. And he's like, actually, I have a response, and I, it's a very easy one. And I can't believe that you asked that question thinking that it would stump me. So, listen, my, one of the reasons that I do this show is I actually – I think it's very important to spread the ideas and the policies that would help regular people. And so in this segment, what I want to do is basically plead to the people on the right who are in that bubble and might have just cocked their head a little bit to the side and said, well, that's interesting. It seemed like Bernie had command of the material and the Fox hosts just were trying to play gotcha. That's correct. That is what was happening. Now, look at the evidence. Look at the data. The thing that's so frustrating about this um, healthcare debate is that it's not a debate. The debate has been settled for decades. Every other developed country has one version or another of a single-payer healthcare system. And they pay half what we pay, and they cover everybody, and they have better health outcomes. Full stop. That tells you everything you need to know. You know what else tells you everything you need to know? Every study that's been done on this finds the same thing. There was the old World Health Organization study, I think it was from the year 2000, which found that the U.S. ranks 37th in the world when it comes to our healthcare system. We are not number one, we are number 37. Now, it's a fair point if somebody says, well, Kyle, that's really old. Like, really? You're going to use, like, a damn near 20-year-old study to prove your point? Okay, put that aside then, because that is a fair point if you say that's too old of a study and we shouldn't use it. Granted, point granted, put that aside. There's a Commonwealth Fund study that, that I think they do it like every two or three years. Um, but this one came out very recently, just a couple of years ago. And you know what they found? We rank, they studied 11 developed countries, 
uh, and their healthcare systems. Out of 11, you know what we ranked? Dead last, 11th. So again, every other developed country, they pay half what we pay, they cover everybody, we have over 20 million uninsured, and they have better health outcomes. So the thing that is so frustrating about this to somebody like Bernie is that he always feels like he's in an episode of the Twilight Zone, where he's out there saying the most obvious thing ever, and he's confronting a wall of ignorance and a wall of misleading propaganda from overpaid anchors who are comfortable because they get the fucking Cadillac plan and and the top of the line. And if you're wealthy, here's the concession. If you're wealthy, if you're a Saudi prince with billions of dollars, yes, you want to come to the U.S. for care. Why? Because for the top 0.01%, it's the best care in the world. But for your average citizen, it is literally the worst in the developed world. So now let's go through some of the um, points that he makes. His first point is just a simple one about health care versus health insurance. What Bernie is proposing is publicly funded insurance, so that version of a single-payer system. Now, when you look at the NHS, so when you look at the United Kingdom, they have public funding, so tax dollars, fund public hospitals, so public institutions. What Bernie's talking about is not an NHS-style system. What he's talking about is more of a French-style system, or if I'm not mistaken, I think a Canadian-style system as well, although I could be wrong about the Canadian one. You guys could fact-check me on that. But in France, what they do is public funding, so tax dollars, funding private hospitals and private institutions, private clinics, private doctors. So it's not like you go full, like nationalize absolutely everything. It's like, okay, just it's, it's public in the sense that it's funded by tax dollars, but the government is the single insurer, not the single deliverer of all the health care. So there is a difference there. There is a distinction there. And the argument has been made, and I think it's a fair point, that that is actually the compromise that the actual left-wing position is an NHS-style system, public funding of public institutions, and, you know, the right-wing position is, okay, let's have everything be private, which, by the way, again, is proven to be a disaster. Um, But the compromise could be we can still have private institutions, but you do public funding of those private institutions. So Bernie makes clear that that's what he's talking about. Bernie also makes clear, for all the fear-mongering about the VA and stuff, did you know that Medicare government health care, and the VA, government health care, they consistently rank as better and more liked than our private system. So this is what the right is so good at. They're so good at pushing a narrative, even if it doesn't fit the facts, they'll push the narrative to the point where everybody goes, yeah, I guess, I guess the VA sucks and I guess Medicare sucks. But they don't. They consistently rank higher than our private system. Furthermore, when you look at how much of each health care dollar or health insurance dollar actually goes to care in the private system? It's about 80 cents out of every dollar that goes to care. Now, you might say, hey, that's not bad. So only 20 cents goes to overhead costs? That's not bad at all. There's a caveat. The caveat is pre-Obamacare, because Obamacare forced that to be the case. Pre-Obamacare, it was like, some, in some cases, 50-50, like half the 50 cents of a dollar would go towards overhead, and only 50 cents would go towards, towards actual care. You know what it is for um, Medicare? It's either 92 or, or 95% goes to actual health care. So 92 cents or 95 cents of the dollar goes towards actual care. 
So the overhead is so much less. So again, I, I could sit here and just ring off facts all day that bust up the arguments on the other side. But it, it's kind of amazing at this point because even with the wall of propaganda that's coming from Fox News, even centrist Democrats aid in this propaganda. Medicare for all, it's not possible. Unicorn, fairy dust, pie in the sky. Every other country does it, but somehow it's fucking impossible. Um, even with all that, it's now the overwhelming majority of Americans that support it. What is it, 70% of Americans now support it? Even a majority of Republicans, 51% of Republicans support it. So the, even with the wall of propaganda, people are onto it. And they're like, this doesn't, this, something smells fishy here. And this is one of the main reasons why Bernie's so loved, is that he's coming out there and he's just telling the truth. And he's up against a wall of bullshit. And now he's managing to convince people. He put this issue front and center. He's managing to convince people. And um, they, they're so ineffectual in responding because now everybody's seeing the light. And there's no going back. You can't convince people that, you know, our system's somehow better now after all the information that's out there in the, in the public square. The other point that he made that I loved is when he said, um, under our system, under Medicare for all, you get freedom of choice. You do not get freedom of choice in our current system. Now, how does that make sense? Because some people might say, I don't, I thought this now is uh, freedom of choice. No, what Bernie's saying is under Medicare for all system, you can go to any hospital or any doctor you want. That is freedom of choice. Don't worry, the government's not going to get in between you and your doctor. The government's going to allow you to see any doctor you want. Now, on the flip side, what do we have now? We have fucking networks. So just to give you one example, but again, I could go on all day here. When I visit um, L.A., whether it's to do Politicon or to go on uh, Joe Rogan's show or go on TYT, when I'm out there, if something happens to me, there's no fucking L.A. hospitals in my health insurance network. So I'm going to have to pay out of pocket. And that shit is how people go bankrupt. Something happens, they're not covered. Oh my God, you got to pay out of pocket. You got to pay fucking whatever it may be, depending on what the problem is. $50,000, $100,000 if it's something serious. This is what happens in this country. Medical bills is one of the top causes of bankruptcy. What a, honestly, ridiculous notion that is. Like, oh, you have coverage, but only if you stay geographically in this tiny location within your own country. If I go on a golf trip to Florida or something, or if I go to L.A., like, no, okay, you get sick, you're on your own, bitch. The other thing is, what Bernie lays out there, he wants to eliminate copays, deductibles, premiums. How happy would you be if those were gone? And by the way, those are what's called a private tax. So everybody's, oh my God, your taxes are going to be raised under Medicare for all. Right now, the point is you're paying more in taxes for your health care. It's just a private tax. It is a private. You have to pay it. You got to get health care. You have to pay. You have to pay the premiums, the copays, the deductibles. At the end of the day, you're paying way more in taxes. With our current system, it's just a private tax. This is how you have to start thinking about this stuff. And again, they're so fundamentally unprepared to deal with what he's saying. So when Martha McCallum thinks it's like a gotcha... Like, oh, yeah, Bernie? Well, how are you going to pay for it? If, if you'd fucking listen, he'll explain it to you, and, and you will digest it if you try to digest it. But, you're, you know, you got the wall of, like, no, I am a talking point machine, so I am going to pretend like this is a gotcha. Bernie's response is effectively, um, under Medicare for All system, 
your, your taxes go up, but if I eliminate your premiums, your deductibles, and your copayments, you are saving money. And again, that's a fact. So our, our overall health care costs in this country, if we do Medicare for all, costs $32 trillion, roughly, over 10 years. And people have pointed out and go, ah, we can't afford it. $32 trillion. $32 trillion. What they don't tell you is, if we don't do Medicare for all, it would cost $37 trillion over that same 10-year time span. So according to a detailed study and analysis from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, it was actually a meta-analysis on this. I think it was a meta-analysis. But anyway, it would save $5 trillion to move to a Medicare for all system. So, I mean, there is, there is no rebuttal, man. This is like a flawless victory, Mortal Kombat type situation. This is not, like, this is literally flawless victory territory. This is anybody who's willing to actually pay attention to the evidence, it's game, set, match. It's over. And, you know, that's why it's so frustrating because, you, like, you have the rise of many right-wing commentators, whether it's Stephen Crowder or Ben Shapiro, and they have sizable followings. And uh, on this issue, they simply don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They're ideologues. They are playing for a team as opposed to following the evidence to its logical conclusion. And it's embarrassing. Like, remember when Ben Shapiro tweeted, like, Bernie was talking about how it's insane, you know, you go bankrupt for some sort of medical procedure, and Ben Shapiro went after him and said something along the lines of, I walk into a furniture store and I can't afford expensive furniture. Isn't that crazy? Like, this is the intellectual that, you know, we're supposed to take seriously? God damn it, man. It's so sad. Um, so when Martha McCallum says you're going to pay one way or the other, the response is, that's right, but you're going to pay less under a Medicare for all system and everybody gets covered and you have better health outcomes. Um, and then final few things here. I didn't know that fact about how when Aetna and CVS had a merger, somebody got $500 million. Like that's, that is such a great example of like, this is how fucked our system is. Like, is really, that's, that's what should be happening? That's how, like, people literally profit off of misery and, and pain in this country. What do you think a, a private health insurance company is? It, it's like a mafia. It's like a middleman, for-profit, rapacious mafia where how do they make more money? How do private, um, for-profit health insurance companies make money? They deny care. The more they deny care, the more money they make, the happier their shareholders are. So they're always looking for ways to weasel out of paying for coverage. Um, And, of course, the part that blew up here, the part that got all the coverage was, this is a Fox News audience, a Bernie Sanders town hall, and they asked, like, hey, who would want to transition to Medicare for All? And the place explodes with cheers. Now, Admittedly, there were a lot, a lot of pro-Bernie people were there. I guess they didn't, you know, micromanage the audience to get all right-wingers, but I kind of thought they would do that, and then it looks like they didn't do that. So when you had, a, like, a normal sample size of people there, and it, what happened was you got a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters because Bernie Sanders is very popular. So since that's the case, yeah, they, that's them being so, like, they drank the Kool-Aid so thoroughly, the Fox hosts that they really expected, even though there were a decent number of Bernie supporters in the audience, like, oh, if we ask 
if they want to keep their private insurance or if they'll switch to Medicare for all, obviously they're going to want to keep their private insurance. Bro, Republicans hate their private insurance too, man. We all have a horror story. Every one of us has a fucking horror story. So it's just, it was really fun to see that bubble burst on live TV. And like I said, ultimately these guys just weren't prepared. Martha McCallum wasn't prepared. Um, Brett Baer wasn't prepared. I, I honestly think Brett Baer hates his job. I really do believe that because I've seen him. I said this on Kylan Corn the other day. I've seen him at uh, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am on TV when the golf pros play with like celebrities and stuff, and he's played in it. He was like a kid on Christmas. He was so happy. He was smiling. He was excited. He loves golf. He's out there. He's like, yes. Anytime I see him on Fox News, he looks miserable. He looks like he fucking hates his life. So that dude's not prepared to counter-argue finer points of health insurance and health care with a guy who eats, sleeps, and breathes, breathes this stuff like Bernie Sanders. And Martha McCallum, again, is not even interested in the rebuttals. Like, you can give a sound rebuttal to her and she'll just bulldoze over it because she doesn't care. She views herself, her job as a talking point machine. So listen, in conclusion, for everybody out there who might be on the right and listening to this, it's time. It's time. It's time for you to see the light. It's time for you to acknowledge the reality of the situation. Now, I'm not saying, hey, you have to abandon all your right-wing beliefs or whatever this second. No. But here's one area where, and, and just to be clear, conservatives in other developed countries are pro-single-payer health care. So it, this isn't like, oh, if I, you know, if I change my mind on this, there goes my whole ideology. No, 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 not necessarily. I mean, maybe. We'll work on you over time. <laughs> but, no, this is one of those issues where, there are conservatives in the rest of the developed world who are like, well, we're not stupid. Like, obviously, we know private health care is worse. Duh. So here we go. And by the way, I got a text from my brother-in-law. Uh, his buddy, who's a hardcore Republican, texted him and said, I think um, I'll vote for Bernie Sanders. What? Why? Because this is what happens. When you go to engage with these folks, you can change hearts and minds. The only thing you can't do is throw stones from the outside and shame them. Okay, you're irredeemable. The Hillary strategy. You're irredeemable. You're, you know, forget you. No, if you go and engage like Bernie did, and you argue right to their face. No, here's why you're wrong, and I'm going to tell you. I'm going to respect you enough to tell you your face why you're wrong. That's how you change hearts and minds. So a hardcore Republican said, I'm thinking of changing parties, voting for Bernie Sanders. And my brother-in-law said, well, why is that? He said, well, look, he's for the policies that help the most people. And I like that. And there are some issues where I still disagree with them, like the issue of abortion. But yeah, I could look past that. Boom. What more can you ask for, man? So how many stories like that are there really out there because of what Bernie did with this town hall? And that's why you go on. And that's why he was 100% correct. Bernie, wonderful job. This was legendary here. And hear me now, quote me later, if Bernie gets through the primary, because that's the hard part, if he gets through the primary, he will landslide Donald Trump. Write it in stone. Okay, next. Final, actually. Final of this town hall. but you guys are going to like it. 
So Bernie Sanders poured on the working class populism in his Fox News town hall. I'm going to show you a clip here. I think this is basically the perfect answer. I don't think it's possible to coach somebody to come up with a better answer than the answer he gave here. Let's watch and then we'll discuss. My question for uh, Senator Sanders here is uh, how would you bring back jobs in industry uh, like Bethlehem Steel that have been lost due to, in part, uh, trade deals that don't favor the American working class? Hey, Rodney, that's a, a great question. You are looking at a former congressman and a senator who voted, not only voted against NAFTA, walked the picket lines with union workers to see that voted against CAFTA, voted against permanent normal trade relations with China, strongly opposed the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And why did I oppose all of these disastrous trade agreements? It was very clear to me that these agreements on the Democratic and Republican leadership was written by multinational corporations to make these corporations even wealthier at the expense of the American worker. So let me suggest what is not a radical idea. American workers should not have to compete against desperate people around the world who are making a dollar or two dollars an hour. Now, I think, I think we have a moral responsibility to lift up poor people around the world along with the rest of the wealthy countries. But you can do that without engaging in a race to the bottom. I don't want, I have heard, you know, I have heard from, you know, I've got a 100% lifetime pro-union voting. We're kind of very close to unions. And I talk to union workers. And they say, our boss has said that if you don't take a pay cut, you don't take a cut in health care, we're going to move to Mexico, we're going to move to China, where people are prepared to work for almost nothing. So we need a trade is a good thing, but we need a trade policy that works for working families and not just for the large corporations. You hear that sound? Do you hear it? That's the sound of Obama voters who turned around and voted for Donald Trump in 2016, turning right back around and voting for Bernie Sanders in 2020. That's what that is. Now, why is this clip so important? It's important because it was about 70,000 votes in the Rust Belt that ultimately handed the election to Donald Trump. Hillary did not campaign in many of these states. She thought, ah, they're in the bag. I'm not even going to go there. And what did Trump do? He went to these states in the lead up to the election and he was hammering uh, NAFTA and he was hammering, you know, I'm going to keep your jobs here. It's going to be tremendous. It's going to be unbelievable. I have to tell you, believe me, folks, believe me. So Bernie Sanders kneecaps all of the perceived advantages that Trump had with his fake populism because you couldn't find Hillary saying shit like Bernie just said right there. You want to know why? Because Hillary supported NAFTA. Hillary supported most of these trade deals. Um, Bill Clinton signed NAFTA. So it's not convincing. Whenever she did say anything that was anti-outsourcing, it was always so tepid and forced to that position, and she didn't dwell on it long because she obviously doesn't really believe in it. So the way to win back that territory is not rocket science. The way to win the Rust Belt is not rocket science. You have to be pro-worker. So what did Bernie say there? I voted against NAFTA. I voted against CAFTA. I voted against permanent normal trade relations with China. I fiercely opposed TPP. Um, 
I protested with unions, and by the way, he still does. He oftentimes goes to protest with them. And then he says, corporations are screwing workers in order to make more money. That's obvious, and we need to fight back against it. I, I don't want any more outsourcing, and I don't want to race to the bottom. It shouldn't be on union workers who are making a decent living to have to compete with Mexico and China, where they have workers working for next to nothing. We need laws that incentivize companies to stay in the United States of America and continue to give people a, a decent wage. What he's saying is like common sense, and he actually cares deeply about it, whereas Donald Trump is a fake populist. And Bernie Sanders will win the Rust Belt massively because it's been clear that, it's clear at this point at least, that Trump was a fake populist. Did you know in Trump's first year as president, 93,000 jobs were outsourced. Did you know that? That's more than Obama. And Trump ran as I'm the anti-outsourcing president. Outsourcing increased. Outsourcing increased under Donald Trump. Instead of signing an executive order that made the U.S. federal government buy goods from only American companies, what did he do? He didn't sign that executive order, and he said, oh, we'll just have a Buy American Week. Well, what does that mean? It's just symbolic. That's it. There's nothing attached to it. There's no actual there there. It's just, yeah, symbolic. I'm so pro-American worker. Let's have a Buy American Week where we don't do anything. We just say it's Buy America Week. So Trump is a fake populist. In his tax bill, 80% of the benefits over a decade go to the top 1%. It cuts the estate tax. That only applies to 0.02% of the public, people with fucking estates. He cut the corporate tax massively. This guy, there's a reason why he packed his administration full of Goldman Sachs lackeys. He is a Goldman Sachs lackey. He wants that pat on the back from the establishment and the moneyed interest. He just had a meeting in Las Vegas with Sheldon Adelson and one of the other asshole GOP billionaire donors. What do you think he's doing? He's building up his war chest for 2020, but he's doing it in all the fucking gross, corrupt, sellout ways that he pretended to be against the first time. So these people rolled the dice on Trump in the Rust Belt. Now, are there people who did vote for Trump because of his bigotry? Yes, they exist. There are some too far gone. They, of course they exist. But the people in the Rust Belt who voted for Obama and then voted for Trump, no, they're not, they do not have the same motivation as the fucking David Dukes and Richard Spencers. They just don't. And one of my main contentions, one of my main beefs with the centrist Democrats is that they pretend like, you know, all the Trump voters are the same. There's no, like... You don't have to look at the multiple different reasons why diff different people voted for him. It's just, ah, they're all bad, they're all racist, they're all bigoted, or at the very least, they overlook the bigotry. So they're all bad, and let's just talk about race nonstop. No, you can actually win a lot of these people, uh, assuming you want to, by the way. And at this point, I think some centrists are so stupid, they don't even want to, like, change anybody's mind, which is why a lot of people were bitching that Bernie went on Fox News at all. But, like, this is how you win them. If somebody voted for Obama twice and, and then voted for Trump, that's a winnable person. You just need to run on the right ideas. And there was a report that we talked about. I think it was a poll uh, about a year and a half ago now. They went and they spoke to these Rust Belt Democrats, and they were very clear. They vote for populist Democrats over Republicans every time. But it has to actually be a populist Democrat. And you know who is a populist Democrat? Bernie Sanders. So he's going he's gonna to work. He's going to fight for the workers, man. That's what he's going to do. And again, the, the thing that flipped this election is simply the Rust Belt, full stop. Those states where it was about 70,000 votes, 70 to 100,000 votes dispersed in the Rust Belt who voted for Trump. And Bernie Sanders 
in just the shit he said here, that alone is enough to change their minds. I guarantee you. Now, he's obviously got to keep making the case because not everybody saw this Fox News town hall. But this is the kind of stuff that changes minds. And this is the kind of stuff that makes it so that he's really a shoe in to be Trump. So funny enough, the same argument that's made by centrists where they say, well, we can't roll the dice on, on uh, somebody you can't win. We got to go with the sure thing. That argument that they make, which is an argument they think to bolster establishment Democrats, the, the exact opposite is true. If you really don't want to roll the dice and all you care about is beating Trump, Bernie Sanders is the answer. He's his kryptonite. So he undercuts all of that fake anti-establishment populist uh, rhetoric that Trump puts out there because Bernie Sanders is actually anti-establishment and he's actually populist. And he also knows how to rip Trump to shreds. So that's the perfect answer right there. I absolutely loved it. Bernie, more of this. All right, now we go to Tulsi Gabbard. After I do this segment, I'll take my first break. So Tulsi Gabbard went on Fox News, and uh, she did a superb job resisting Trump in the proper way, which is from the left. You know, one of my main criticisms of uh, corporate Democrats is that they often resist Trump from the right, and that's a terrible idea, because what you're doing is you're bolstering right-wing policies, and you're prodding him to be more hawkish. And that's unacceptable. So Tulsi really does a great job here. She puts on a clinic in resisting Trump from the left and staying principled as she resists against Trump. So this is something other Democrats struggle with. Tulsi does not. Let's take a look and then we'll discuss. Uh, it appears that a missile has been fired in North Korea, some sort of tactical guided missile. It's not confirmed by the Pentagon or the administration yet, but they're citing South Korean news agencies and agencies over there. That would mean, if true, that 591 days have passed since the last missile was fired. You're on House Armed Services. Uh, your thoughts, if that turns out to be the case? Uh, well, look, Brett, obviously we need to determine the facts and get the details of, of what has actually happened here. But I think it's important to address the larger issue, which is that we still need to continue to pursue our efforts with negotiations with North Korea to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula and end, finally bring about an end to the Korean War. I think in this connection it is also important to note why it is that we have not made progress on that deal. And we can look to the policies being pushed by this administration that are directly undermining their ability to negotiate this deal, those policies that are continuing to further regime change wars and regime change efforts in other countries like Venezuela and Iran that, that make it impossible for Kim Jong-un to believe them when they tell him, don't worry, get rid of your nuclear weapons, we're not going to come after you. So how would They're you handle undermining their own credibility and the ability by changing our policy. This is not something that can happen overnight, but it begins with ending our regime change wars in other countries, ending our regime change efforts as we are seeing in these countries like Venezuela and Iran, so that when we negotiate with, with North Korea, with Kim Jong-un, and we tell him that we will not come after you, we will not seek to topple your regime if you get rid of your nuclear weapons, understanding that this is why North Korea has nuclear weapons as the only deterrent against regime change, then we begin to have that credibility 
to be so able to have that agreement to achieve that objective of denuclearization. Basically, you're saying you would do what the administration is doing. You would be talking to Kim Jong-un, but you wouldn't do what they're doing in other places so that you would send the right signal to Kim Jong-un. I'm just trying to get what you would do differently with North Korea. Yeah, yeah, of course, the situation. of course. Look, absolutely. I've served in Congress now for over six years and on the Armed Services and Foreign Affairs Committees. And under the Obama administration, I encouraged them to have direct talks with North Korea to achieve this objective of denuclearization, encouraged the Trump administration to do the same, and agreed when Trump decided to meet with Kim Jong-un. We must be willing to meet with those who may be potential adversaries or adversaries in the pursuit of peace and security. So yes, this is the correct move. However, this administration is undermining their own efforts by continuing to further these regime change uh, efforts and wars in other parts of the world, making it so they've got no credibility as they're trying to barter and negotiate with North Korea and get them to, to denuclearize. Okay, obviously the administration says it differently, trying to put the screws to some of these dictators that are doing bad things. I want to turn the topic uh, Ultimately, to they are trying to topple, topple the dictators in these other countries, topple the leaders of these other countries, which is the point that I'm trying to make. All right, Congresswoman, which is they I, I want to turn to the, good faith make that point to Kim Jong-un. The other breaking news, which is we're waiting for this release of the redacted Mueller report. That was great. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, you got us. Anyway, uh, moving on. <laughs> That's a really great point. I have no rebuttal to it. So anyway, uh, something else, Mueller, something. <laughs> uh, oh, that was great. So basically what Tulsi Gabbard is saying is this. I support peace. I support negotiation and compromise and open dialogue with other countries, including our enemies. That's how you make peace. You talk to your enemies. But I'm consistent on that. So what Trump is doing and the administration is doing that's so wrong is not, oh, my God, they're talking to Kim Jong-un, and that's terrible. That's the argument that hacky Democrats make. What Tulsi Gabbard is saying is, no, 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 it's great. It's wonderful that you're talking to Kim Jong-un, and I hope you get a peace deal. But the problem is that look at what you're doing in Venezuela, where you're trying to topple a country that is in no way, shape, or form a threat to us, and they're not going to attack us, and you're threatening to offensively overthrow them and do regime change. Um, look at what you're doing in Syria. Look at what you're doing in Iraq. Look at what we're still doing in Afghanistan. So at the same time, Trump pretends like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, totally, Kim Jong-un. You could trust me. Let's make a deal, bro. At the same time he's saying that, he's actively trying to topple and overthrow countless other governments. So why the fuck should Kim Jong-un believe you? Now, furthermore, you go back to the Obama administration, and you go back to Bush as well, but for this particular example, it's the Obama administration. What do they do? They, you know, with uh, Gaddafi in Libya, they were like, give up your weapon. And, and Gaddafi gave him up because he's like, shit, I saw what happened to Saddam, so I don't want that happening to me. So, okay, here, take my, uh, take my weapons. And the U.S. turned around and aided in toppling Libya anyway and toppled Gaddafi anyway. So that me- what you need to understand is that message resonates around the world. So you think like, our enemy governments trust us if we have some sort of deal. Look at what happened with Iran. That's another example Tulsi brings up. Trump, at the same time, he's trying to create some sort of a nuclear peace agreement with Kim Jong-un in North Korea. He's ripping up a nuclear peace agreement with Iran and pulled out of it, even though the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, said, oh, yeah, they're following the agreement uh, to a T and they're doing nothing wrong. 
So you're pulling out of the, you're basically ripped up the Iran deal with Iran, and now you're trying to make an Iran deal with uh, Kim Jong-un? That makes no sense. So, and what I love about Tulsi saying this is, even with this new missile test that Kim Jong-un is doing, she didn't take the bait. Every other Democrat except maybe Ro Khanna would have been like, oh my God, we, we, they must stop this needless escalation and aggression against the United States of America. I can't believe that they're doing this. Tulsi didn't take the bait. You want to know why Tulsi didn't take the bait? Because she actually understands that North Korea is not a threat to us, not even in the slightest. In fact, in moments of honesty, our own generals have admitted this. People in our own intelligence agencies have admitted this. They say, listen, we think North Korea wants a nuke for deterrence because they think that we're about to topple them, so they just want to have something to ensure that we won't topple them. They have no interest in attacking us. None at all. So Tulsi Gabbard knows that, and a random fucking missile testing doesn't change that fact at all, that they are not an offensive threat to us. By the way, you want to talk about real political incorrectness? That's, it's what I just said right there. People on the right love to feign like they're being politically incorrect. No, oftentimes you're just incorrect. You're not politically incorrect. What you're saying isn't edgy. It's just dumb, and it's just wrong. You want to know the real politically incorrect shit to say? What I just said right now. North Korea is not a threat to us, not even a little bit. When all of mainstream media, wall to wall, they act like, oh, my Kim Jong-un, oh, my God, what a threat to us. Oh, my Nonsense. Nonsense. It's politically incorrect, but it's true to say that Kim Jong-un and North Korea are not even close to a threat to us. There, I said it. Go ahead, melt down, snowflakes. I don't give a fuck, centrist Democrats and right-wingers. But Tulsi Gabbard gets that. And credit to her for sticking to a principled position of being anti-war in the face of somebody trying to prod her to be pro-war. So, well done. Uh, this is great work here. And I really don't think any other Democrat, except maybe Ro Khanna, would have said something similar. So, wonderful stuff here from Tulsi. That's how you resist from the left. You stay true to a principled position. And you try to hold them to that principle. You don't, like, pivot... For, for convenience, you don't change your position for expedience, for political expedience, to do a gotcha real quick, because then you come across like a hack. Okay. Let's take a break. When we come back, CNN always finds a way to disappoint, and the Andrew Yang town hall they did was no exception. So we'll talk about that. And then also we got, um, I do want to go back to the Bernie Town Hall one time and just give you a breakdown of all of their shitty questions. Because all they had was shitty questions. Stay right there. We'll be right back with all of that and more.
right, we're back, everybody. We are back. Son of a bitch. Okay. All right. We're going to get to Andrew Yang in just a second. So as I'm live on air right now, the Mueller report was just released. Well, the redacted version of the Mueller report. Um, I obviously don't have time to go through it during the live show to do a segment on it, but obviously I'll, I'll read through it and I'll be doing a segment on the next secular talk show. Um, I actually think it's a good thing to give it like a little bit of time so that everybody settles down because obviously both sides are going to harp away on their talking points and focus on the things in the report that they think prove their case. So um, I think it's a good thing that I'm going to have now a, a few days to actually go through it and then give you guys my uh, full breakdown of what it says. So there will not be, you know, I'm not going to go through the report now because I just simply don't have time to go through it during a live show. It's literally released during a live show. Uh, But I will go through it, and I will break it down for you on the next Secular Talk show, so you have that to look forward to. I'm sure it will be interesting. Okay. So CNN always finds a way to disappoint And uh, the Andrew Yang town hall they did is no exception at all. So look at what this host, who I've never seen, by the way, I've never seen before, by the way, look at what she ends up asking him. Here in Washington, Constance, go ahead. Over the last couple of years, we've seen a resurgence of white nationalist violence. As a survivor of the deadly car attack in Charlottesville, It is important to me that our next president addresses this issue immediately. Please explain how you will work to curtail this problem, and also please explain whether you will support a bill that defines white nationalist violence as terrorism. Well, first, uh, congratulations to you, Constance, for your incredible work. Let's give her a round of applause. And and what you've been through. Uh, if the camera people permitted it, I would run out and give you a hug right now. I'm going to give you a hug in the next commercial break. Because what you've been through sounds incredibly uh, difficult and traumatic. Uh, so to me, right now, this tribalism that's tearing our country apart, it's related um, to a dysfunctional economy. Because if you feel like you don't have a future and your kids don't have a future, and then someone comes up with this, for example, scapegoating immigrants or hateful ideologies, then you're much more subject to those. So by getting the economic boot off of people's throat, hopefully we can help alleviate this tribalism. I'm inspired by the work of Dia Khan, this filmmaker who engaged in something called anti-hate. And so right now the temptation for many of us is just to condemn uh, racism and hatred, which you know we should do because it has no place in our society. But then the next step after that is to actually convince the people that these hateful ideologies are incorrect. Uh, And that's more difficult, it's more painstaking, but over time, uh, it's our best path forward to hopefully convince people that there is no place for hate in the United States of America. Mr. Yang, you may know that white nationalists are supporting you online. They seem to have seized on some of your statements, which they say are proof that you are particularly concerned about white people. Why do you think they're drawn to your candidacy? 
You know, it, it's been a point of confusion because I don't look much like a white nationalist. Uh, the closest thing we could come up with for it was that I sent, um, I, I retweeted the New York Times saying that, uh, that, um, that Americans are dying of opiates in record numbers, um, so much so that more people are dying than being born in various communities. And those communities were largely white communities in the, the Midwest and the South. Um, so I completely disavowed any of that support. I don't want the support of anyone who has any kind of agenda that's different than the agenda of this campaign. And our slogan is humanity first. We're trying to solve the problems and improve the lives for tens of millions of Americans. In your book, you do say the group I worry about most is poor whites. Why are you most concerned about that group, poor whites? Well, in the context of my book, I was suggesting to Constance's point, like, uh, how is this uh, tribalism and violence going to manifest itself? And so the group I was most worried about was poor whites who felt like they had no future, um, and that, that violence would emerge in large part because that group would become increasingly um, angry and distressed. And so that's the context of the book. But I am most concerned about that group in terms of the, the nationalism that Constance was describing. That was just so hacky. Dude. Dude. In his book, he says, I'm concerned about poor whites being radicalized into forms of white nationalist extremism. And her interpretation of that is, why do you say you're most concerned about poor whites? That is not at all an accurate summary of, of what he was actually saying. It's, uh, see, this is, why, this is why mainstream media sucks, and this is why like, it, it's a bipartisan thing among the people where like, we don't like you. We don't like mainstream media. We hate corporate media because that is so hacky. Every part about that was so hacky. By the way, in this same town hall, he talks about how, well, he just said it there. There's no place for hate. Okay, that's number one. Number two is he repeatedly talks about how we need a pathway to citizenship for immigrants who are here and how he's the son of immigrants. And the argument is that this guy is some sort of a, like a, a crypto white nationalist or something. I mean, come on, man. If there's, any, if there's something that I can't stand, it's... Um, it's like these multiple degrees removed, but trying to tar somebody for it. So th they've done this with Tulsi, too, where they say, like, Steve Bannon doesn't hate Tulsi Gabbard, and David Duke doesn't hate Tulsi Gabbard. Well, first of all, you know what her response was when that, that was brought up to her? She's like, I don't like them. I hate them. And in fact, when uh, David Duke tweeted something about Tulsi, she responded directly to him and was like, no, like, fuck you. I don't like you. <laughs> I don't like you, and, you know, I have, I'm, I'm a person of color, so, like, piss off. So that's point number one, but point number two is, if you actually go to, like, what they say as to why they don't hate Tulsi, it's because there's this growing contingent of, there's paleoconservatives, but there's also, yes, white nationalists, and some of them happen to have ideas on other issues that are, like, not insane, like they're anti-war or, you know, sometimes they're, uh, they're against so-called free trade and outsourcing all these jobs. In fact, Matthew Heimbach, who's the head of, like, a literal um, white nationalist political party, his whole thing is, like, I'm going to take Bernie Sanders' platform and just mix it in with, like, brazen, overt, 
over-the-top, insane, vicious bigotry and xenophobia and hatred. So, like, massively anti-immigrant and anti-anybody who doesn't look exactly like them, but, like, against Wall Street and against the wars and stuff like that. So, you know, to go after somebody like Tulsi, because there are some people who are terrible people who don't hate her, that's so stupid. That's like, that's like if fucking Richard Spencer said, like, oh, Kyle Kalinske makes some good points on foreign policy. Is everybody supposed to now act like, I'm evil and I'm terrible and I'm a stealth white nationalist or something because fucking a broken clock is right twice a day. Like, I obviously... Fuck that guy. I hate that fucking guy. He's a piece of shit. But he also might happen to agree that the Iraq war was bad. Like, is, are people incapable of that basic bare minimum level of nuance and detail? Because if that is the case, God, we are so fucked. We are. But my guess is people are not... Like, regular people are not like, oh, my God, there's some, some right-leaning people who are making Pepe memes online who like Andrew Yang. Therefore, like, he obviously secretly agrees with them on everything, and he's, like, bigoted or something, or he's a, a stealth white nationalist. No, I think regular people can look at that and go, okay, that's kind of weird that they like him, but it doesn't matter. Who cares? It doesn't, doesn't reflect on him in any way, because if you go through his policy platform, it's gotten not a not a sniff not a hint of bigotry in it and one of the things that um they point to is and andrew yang pointed this out is all he tweeted an article about opioid addiction and in the article it talks about how it's it's mostly affecting like poor rural whites and so he weighed in on that and and like said that in a tweet and people who are doing like willful misinterpretations of the situation are going aha see he only cares about white people no, he's tweeting an article about opioid addiction, and it just so happens it affects that demographic. Like, what the fuck? That, uh, it's, it's insane to, to say that that means he only cares about white people or he predominantly cares about white people. In the context of what he was saying there, um, it, he was concerned about them being radicalized, which is a reasonable concern if, you know, they're, uh, they're poor and they're hopeless and there's no way out and they're in extreme poverty, and they start scapegoating others. So that's what he's talking about. He's not saying, I care about them, or they're more important than everybody else. That's not what he's saying at all. So it's just, it's, and by the way, this is, segment is brought to you by somebody who's not, I'm not a supporter of Andrew Yang. He's not in my top two. I'll tell you that much. I have a top two. He ain't in it. And the reason he ain't in it is, as I've explained before, um, I don't like his, uh, his approach on regulation. He believes in sunsetting regulations over a certain number of years and basically like making the government, you know, come back every few years to figure out what regulations make sense and don't make sense. I think that's a, a, an idea that's birthed from his, uh, his history as an entrepreneur and that's too business oriented. And I think that's not a good idea. I think that um, there are some regulations we can get rid of, of course, if there's red tape and it's annoying, like just... The other day, I had to take the tints off of my car because New York has a new law that you can't have tints. Okay, that's overregulation and it's dumb and I don't agree with it. But like, no, you don't sunset all regulations. That's crazy. Wall Street, like those regulations are super important. So no, I wouldn't sunset it. There's also some stuff on the First Amendment that I don't like with him where he seems to be in favor of controlling speech online that I'm totally not cool with. So I have disagreements with him. Uh, he also said in this same town hall, he used to say, I'm for Medicare for all, full stop. Now he says, I'm in the Medicare for all public option camp. Wait, what? Which is it? Medicare for all or public option? So very different things. 
And if you're not 100% on Team Medicare for All, I'm not interested in you. I'm just not. That's Elizabeth Warren's problem, too. She's been hedging on Medicare for All. Well, we have all these wonderful paths to the same goal. There's Medicare for All. There's, you know, Medicare buy-in expansion. There's public option. There's Medicare 55. It's no, those aren't the same thing. They're not remotely close, remotely close to the same thing. One of them is far superior. The other ones are not even that great. So I have my concerns with Andrew Yang, and I don't agree with him, and he's not in my top two. But I also, you have to be fair to him. You can't fucking just smear him in this gross way. And again, this is why people hate corporate media. Because, it's, I mean, that's just such a hacky way to approach this. That's how you're going to talk to Andrew Yang when you have, like, there's so many things you can do. You can go into the details and the specifics of his UBI program. And by the way, that's another reason why he's attracted some right-wing support is because universal basic income, Milton Friedman supported a version of it. Uh, it's, a, it's a bipartisan idea because universal basic income, it can be crafted in a way where the right would like it. Namely, you get rid of all the social safety net programs and then you, um, you, know, you replace that with just one lump sum payment. But it, it, the right-wingers like it if you end up net giving less out in benefits if that makes sense. So like, okay, cut the social safety net programs. This person was getting the equivalent of, let's say, $1,000 a month through benefits or $1,500 a month through benefits from the social safety net. Andrew Yang would get rid of the social safety net and replace it with a $1,000 uh, payment. Well, that saves the government $500. That's smaller government. That's why right-wingers like it. Um, but if you craft it in a, in a certain way, left-wingers could like it too. Like if you keep the social safety net programs there and give UBI on top of it, lefties would like it. Or if, you know, if somebody was getting $800 in benefits from the government through the safety net and then you get rid of that and give them $1,000, well, then you're net giving poor folks more, so then lefties would like that. So UBI, bottom line is, guys, I know this is a convoluted, complicated conversation. UBI is something that the left and the right can, can enjoy and support depending on the specifics of it and how it's crafted. So um, that's one of the reasons why he supports, uh, why he has some right-wing support. And also, let's face it, a lot of right-wingers who went for Trump are kind of desperate and they know the economy's broken and they don't see a bright future. And when somebody com comes along and says, I'll give you $1,000 a month, they're like, yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> so there's a bunch of reasons why he's gotten some right-wing support. He also went on Joe Rogan's podcast, and Joe Rogan's audience overall, I would say, leans right. Um, although there's also, you know, plenty of support for left-wingers when they go on there. I've been on there a bunch of times. But it, that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to have the support of people who would otherwise disagree with you if you're changing their mind and making them agree with better policies. And if, if think about it. If somebody who's a white nationalist, votes for Andrew Yang, let's say, you do realize that they would be fundamentally undermining their own beliefs because they're supporting a guy who is in favor of a path to citizenship and is not viciously anti-immigrant. So aren't we supposed to like that? Like, oh, you, congratulations, you just changed the mind of this insane far-right-wing white nationalist. Unfortunately, in, with our shitty system and the way it works now, and, and the way corporate media works, they go, no, this is bad or something, and maybe you're like a stealth white nationalist. Uh, so again, I'm not, he's not in my top two, but I, I think, what did I tell you? I told you months ago, 
every candidate, every Democratic candidate, except Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Andrew Yang, and even Elizabeth Warren, every Democratic candidate except those four will get glowing positive coverage. And those four will get negative coverage. And what I said has been totally proven correct. Because the majority coverage on Bernie, the majority coverage on Tulsi, the majority coverage on Yang, when he gets any, and the majority coverage on Elizabeth Warren is fucking, it's negative. So think about why that is. Maybe, maybe that shows that they're actually the candidates who would change shit. Okay. All right, let's do the last one here from the town hall from Bernie. I just got to show you, um, I have to show you a breakdown of the questions that the Fox News idiots asked, because this is, I think, pretty important. So a few days ago, Bernie did a town hall on Fox News in a factory town in Pennsylvania. Um, We already went through a bunch of the clips of it where he's talking, but what I want to do is show you a a compilation of the shitty questions asked by the Fox hosts. Watch. Taxes do show that you're a millionaire. You did make a million in 2016, 2017. You're right, the 561 in 2018. But your marginal tax rate, tax rate was 26% because of President Trump's tax cuts. So why not say, you know, I'm leading this revolution. I'm not going to take those. All right, so 52%. So would you be willing to pay 52% on the money that you made? Awesome. You can volunteer. You can send a check. Oh, you can volunteer, too. We have a... But you suggested... But I just want to back on the, the taxes briefly. It, you know, when you wrote, wrote the book and you made the money, yeah. isn't that the definition of capitalism, the American dream? What do you say to those who have raised the question of whether or not you are, would be too old at 79 as president? About Vermont, because Vermont tried to have a single-payer program, and in 2014 the Democratic governor abandoned it because he had to raise income taxes, had to raise uh, payroll taxes, and the people of Vermont didn't want their taxes no, to go up. Quite true. And that's and, it, and they abandoned no, the program. So it's well, working Vermont. So you just saw in, in uh, Peter Ducey's package there people saying that they think the economy is doing pretty well here. So in, in Pennsylvania you've got unemployment is down over the past couple of years. Wages are up six point six percent. So how do you convince those people in this area who I know you'd like to win over this time around that they should, you know, sort of change horses and and go with you when things are going well. We have a a shot of the current national debt clock. It stands at more than $22 trillion uh, tonight, and as we're talking here, it is ticking up. You've talked about ways to pay for your plans, but there is a lot of doubt uh, that your plans might actually speed up that clock dramatically. So when you look at that, do you not care about that anymore? I think you're asking the wrong guy. Maybe it's the president. Yeah, um, it was it was just that was horrendous. They did such a bad job. 
Um, the questions, you're a millionaire. Why won't you just like willingly pay more in taxes? The whole idea would be to connect, collect enough revenue to then programs that give people equal opportunity. So you raise taxes and then you take that money and you give uh, universal college. You raise taxes on the rich and you take that money and you put it towards our Medicare for All system. You raise taxes on the rich and you take that money and you set up a, a paid maternity leave program. Like The whole idea is to have a reasonable system and you do that by collecting tax revenue and uh, raising taxes on the right people and their dumbass response is just, well, she's willingly pay more yourself, and that's just you. I have The fuck is wrong with you guys? Then, so they said that once, and they said it again. Will you volunteer to pay more taxes? I mean, they think it's a gotcha. It's not even close to a gotcha. It's so fucking stupid. And then, um, isn't selling your book the American dream? What? <laughs> Like what? Do you think Bernie Sanders in his platform is like, I shall ban the sale of books? Like, what What are you saying? Or what? Do you, are you implying that because that's the American dream and he sold his book and he made money, that like that's a viable path for everybody else in the country? Because he's a senator. Not everybody's going to get to be senator. <laughs> like, I don't understand. Like, what? what exactly is your point there? I know you're trying to do a gotcha, but your gotcha is just damn near incoherent. And also, he made a mil over a million dollars in one or two years because of his books, and he would raise his own taxes. So there's no, like, there's no gotcha here. What are you saying? Isn't that uh, the American dream by making a million dollars from selling a book? Bernie wants to give everybody equal opportunity. Full stop. The rest is noise. You're just trying to play stupid gotcha games. Then, of course, they hit him with, aren't you too old? Okay, Donald Trump is almost the same age as Bernie Sanders. He's close to the same age as Bernie Sanders. They're both in their 70s. Bernie Sanders exercises all the time, and he's a healthy weight. Donald Trump is about to have a Wendy's overdose. Now, I'm not hating. I love Wendy's. But let's be serious here. If you have somebody who's, what is he, 72, Trump is, and Bernie's 77, you have an unhealthy 72-year-old and a healthy 77-year-old I call that a wash. I call it a wash. And some people might even say I'm being unfair that the healthy 77-year-old is actually in a much better situation. Okay, fair enough. But why, like, why are you asking that question? It's just so hacky. And Bernie goes on. He gives a good answer. You didn't see it there, but he goes on to say, forget all that. Follow me on the campaign trail, number one, to see how, you know, the shape I'm in, because you'd be impressed if you followed me on the campaign trail. But also, I don't, it doesn't, age is irrelevant. You should care about the ideas and the policies, which is 100% correct. Um... And then he says, and then they say, oh, single payer didn't work in Vermont. If it doesn't work in Vermont, then why do you think it'll work in the U.S.? Well, single payer works in every other developed country. So that's why, because it works everywhere. Um, and the reason why it doesn't work in Vermont is not the reason you're giving. The reason why it didn't work in Vermont is because of immense pressure from the healthcare industry and the health insurance industry. So what a massively misleading question. But again, they don't know shit because they're just trying to do gotchas. Um, and then my favorite is, isn't the economy wonderful? <laughs> like, they cherry-pick data about a very specific thing, and they're like, see, isn't the economy great? No, it's not. Real wages are falling 1%. Over half of American workers make $30,000 a year or less. 78% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Um, corporate profits are soaring, but average people are not feeling the benefits of that. That's all going to the top 1%. 
So it's a, no. The answer is no. The economy is not doing great. Nine, over 90,000 jobs were outsourced in Trump's first year in office. This is ridiculous. You're, you're doing misleading statistics on purpose. So that's the thing is that they're not honest actors. But it was still a good thing that Bernie went on because he kicked their ass up and down the fucking show. So that was fun to watch. Um, and then finally, why, sir, do you not seem to care about the national debt? Dude, Bernie's answer, I kept Bernie's answer in there on purpose because he's right. Like, you're asking me? It's fucking President Adderall dipshit, who you guys love, who's, who just added over a trillion dollars um, to, the, to the debt because he wanted to give a giant tax cut to the rich and multinational corporations. Why are you asking me? Don't ask me. Ask him. He's the one. He's the one who debt fear mongered all the time before he was president. Now he's president. And he's adding to it willy-nilly. He doesn't give a fuck. Why are you asking me? I never was a debt fear monger. And by the way, Bernie actually has plenty of stuff he could point to where he says, I would um, make cuts in certain areas that would have us save money, like massively cutting the military budget. He voted against Trump's increase in the military budget. Trump increased the military budget massively. It was already massive and bloated, and Trump increased it more. Bernie voted against it. Those would be massive savings to the government. So are there things where Bernie would save money? Yeah, no, wall, no more Wall Street bailouts, no more corporate welfare, um, no more bloated uh, military budgets. So yeah, there's plenty of areas where he would save money. So you're just asking the wrong guy. Also, Bernie would raise more revenue through like Wall Street transaction tax, for example, increasing the top marginal tax rate. So Bernie would be much more fiscally, uh, you know, fiscally sound than Donald Trump. And Honestly, to the chagrin of many MMT folks who might look at Bernie and say, you don't even need to cut back that much on certain areas. But if, if, there's, if there's stuff that should be cut, why not? Just cut it. So you're asking the wrong person, 100%. You should be asking Donald Trump because Bernie never was a debt fear monger. And even if he was, there's plenty of stuff he would cut. Stupid shit. So Fox News is a joke. Everybody knows it. But when you see the questions spliced back to back like that, you really get a sense of it that they're in over their head, these hosts don't know what they're doing, and that's the point, is they're playing gotcha. That's the whole point, which is why corporate media sucks, and everybody hates them, whether it's Fox News, MSNBC, or CNN, and new media is where it's at. Okay, now we are going to go to how the Democratic establishment is coming after Bernie Sanders in the grossest way. This is going to piss a lot of you off, and it should. So the Democratic establishment is having secret anti-Bernie Sanders meetings. And at this point now, it's not so secret. They were hiding it, but it leaked in the New York Times. So take a look at this. The matter of what to do about Bernie and the larger imperative of party unity has, for example, hovered over a series of previously undisclosed Democratic dinners in New York and Washington organized by longtime party financier Bernard Schwartz. The gatherings have included scores from the moderate or center left wing of the party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, 
Senator Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, former Governor Terry McAuliffe um, of Virginia, Mayor Pete uh, Booty Judge of South Bend. Mayor Pete was at these. Wow. Um, and the president of the Center for American Progress, Neera Tandon. Oh, God. So if you weren't um, convinced yet that Booty Judge is terrible, well, now you know. Now you know. Secret meetings with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Neera Tandon and a bunch of these corporate Democrats. And um, they go on to say, quote, He did us a disservice in the last election, said Mr. Schwartz, a longtime Clinton supporter who said he would support former Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr. in this primary. And they go on to um, expand on that, and they say, he heard us, bro, in the last election. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What did we learn about the last election from WikiLeaks, by the way? Which I know you guys say, oh, Russia attack on the government. You're not allowed to talk about any of the factual stuff that was released. Mm. Well, no, we're going to talk about it because we care about the truth here, unlike you. So what did we learn? We learned that Donna Brazil was slipping Hillary Clinton uh, questions to the debates beforehand. We learned that they tried to bury the debates on purpose so they wouldn't give Bernie more time and, and allow him to his candidacy to blow up. We learned about Hillary Clinton giving these speeches and to, to rich folks and saying, there's an intolerable bigotry against the rich in this country. We learned about Hillary Clinton saying um, she has public positions and private positions. We learned about her saying she's for totally free and open trade borders. Basically, that's like NAFTA on steroids. We learned about so much DNC fuckery. We learned that the DNC was literally acting as a campaign arm of Hillary Clinton. That's not an exaggeration. They had a fundraising agreement between the two of them. So this, this body that's supposed to be neutral was acting as a campaign arm of one of the two final candidates. This is why people say, yeah, it's kind of rigged. Because it was kind of rigged. It absolutely was. So we learned that, and these assholes have the nerve to say, quote, he did us a disservice in the last... He, he did you a disservice. He did you a disservice. What about you get doing him a disservice? Or, or do you, are you just done pretending like you even believe in democracy and care about the will of the people? Because that's what it seems like the reality is. And that's the truth. They don't care about democracy. It was a coronation for Hillary Clinton the last time. He got in the way with this fucking popular ideas of, like, helping people and actually being left-wing. He got in the way. Step the fuck aside. Let the corporatist status quo neoliberal get in power and shut the fuck up. You know your role. The left doesn't take over the party. We determine it. Us wonderful establishment centrists, yes. They have the nerve to say shit like this. And now the most important point is what? What happen to unity because how often do they scream about that 24 7 they scream about that oh unity oh we must come together to beat donald trump oh unity fall in line why doesn't the left unify fall in line unify notice the cries only work in one direction when it's the lefty who's the front runner and who's the overwhelming favorite, Bernie Sanders, all of a sudden they're like, okay, what can we do to stop this guy's momentum? How can we undercut him, undermine him, defeat him, smear him? And they've been, recently they've been smear after smear in the media, throwing shit against the wall and hoping it sticks. So the reality is they don't believe in unity. They never did believe in unity. In the same way that they, scream, they would scream about unity, 
and then they recently turned around and said, we should primary Ilhan Omar. What happened to unity? I thought you said unity. I thought you said, oh, the wings need to come together and hold hands and sing kumbaya to defeat Trump. Unless, of course, we don't like you, in which case we're going to undercut you and undermine you and smear you and make it so that there is no unity. So, listen, the whole point of me doing this segment is to say this. If you're a lefty politician, wake up. There is a civil war. It is raging. It is going on, and it's strong. And you need to acknowledge it. Shoving your head in the sand and pretending, oh, no, we can get along and hold hands and sing kumbaya. No, 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 no. They're going to undercut you and undermine you and smear you and besmirch you on a regular basis. And if you're not prepared to respond, then you're a sucker. You understand that? I hope I'm being clear. Because that's the thing that happens to them. They want you to play ball, but you don't get to tell them to play ball. Hey, how about you play ball? How about you play ball and realize the front runner is the guy who you don't agree with? But, hey, unity, right? So how about you shut the fuck up? They only scream at you to play ball. You never get to tell them to play ball. You never get to tell them, hey, chill, chill, chill. Do you want to beat Donald Trump? Bernie Sanders just did the Fox News town hall. He ranted and railed against the trade deals, and we know he's changing people's minds. I've seen personal evidence of it. Granted, it's anecdotal, but my brother-in-law's friend who's a hardcore Republican is like, I think I'm going to vote for Bernie now. So he's changing minds. Those 70,000 votes in the Rust Belt that turned the election to Trump, they would immediately flip back to Bernie. So here's the strongest candidate to beat Bernie Sanders, not uh, to beat Donald Trump. Not just my opinion. That's actually a fact. When you look at the polls, Bernie Sanders is beating Trump in every poll. So he definitely is the strongest candidate. So how come I don't get to turn around to you and say, unity, fall in line? Because, again, it's, it's a tool. They use it to bludgeon you over the head. It's a tactic. It's not a real principled belief they have. It's a tactic. So, and by the way, when I say we need to engage in the civil war if we're on the left, let me be clear. There is no civil war among the actual people. The actual people are crystal clear. We want Medicare for all. We want free college. We want a living wage. We want to end the wars. We want to legalize marijuana. We want a Green New Deal, so on and so forth. Among the people, that's, that's Mortal Kombat flawless victory all day long. They're on the side of the left where there is a a raging civil war is in Washington, D.C., in the halls of Congress and in the Senate, where the establishment wing of the party makes up the majority of the people there. And they will do everything to undermine not just the left, but their own base and the people in their own party. So that's why it's important you recognize that there is a civil war, because you're fighting against a small cabal of elites who are trying to block progress on purpose so that they can keep serving their donors. But now you know, they are losing their minds over Bernie Sanders and his momentum. And they're trying to undermine it at every turn. The only positive thing that came out of this article, which I loved, is they kind of realize that they're fucked. And here's what I mean by that. They think, oh my God, if we go after him, that only emboldens his supporters. So the more we go after him, the more it might help him. That's what some of them say. And the other ones are like, well, what are we going to do? We have to go after him because that's our only prayer is if we go after him to take him down, right? So they're, they're like, they don't see a way out. That's the best part of this story is that they've now recognized the conundrum. It's a conundrum that I brought up to you a long time ago about how this happened to Trump in 2016. The Republican establishment and the media went after him and went after him and went after him, and he just got stronger and stronger. And they're like, oh, what do we do? Do we keep going after him because he's getting stronger? Do we do nothing? Can we beat him if we do nothing? I think the media smearing Bernie nonstop, and now the Democratic establishment smearing him nonstop, 
And we might be at the point where he already has that name recognition and he's already so liked that it helps him when they do that to him. So he could trump the Democratic primary in a way. They're aware of that contradiction and that conundrum and that paradox, and they don't know what to do about it, which is awesome. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, I have um, a bunch of crazy far-right-wing pastors saying insane, insane things. I got E.W. Jackson. I got Michelle Bachman. I got Rick Wiles later on in the show. Stay right there. Still plenty of stuff to discuss.
All right, we're back. Let's let's get to some silliness. Who doesn't like a little bit of silliness in an otherwise serious show? Time to go to E.W. Jackson. He sounds like a founding father, doesn't he? E.W. Jackson. Okay, here we go. E.W. Jackson is a pastor and a former um, Republican politician. He now has a radio show. And he weighed in on the 2020 Democratic primary. Wait until you hear what he says about Pete Buttigieg. When he announced his campaign, one of the things he did to, I guess, commemorate the announcement, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg or whatever it is, uh, was to kiss his husband on stage. Yes. Big old smack in the mouth. But uh, let me say this, because it, 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 is, it is needed to release all those who want to say it but cannot. A normal man is disgusted huh? by the idea of two men kissing each other in the mouth. <laughs> President Barack Obama lit up the White House in rainbow color to celebrate the Supreme Court's abominable decision that declared same-sex marriage as the law of the land. He lit the White House up with rainbow. You know, I, I hope somebody went in there after he was in there and purged that place of all that demonic nest that, that I think he, he, he just, that, that spirit, the spirits that he brought in there. If someone like Buttigieg were to get Elect, I don't know about Christianity being destroyed, but I tell you what, we would be on the defensive. And I know that as much as these uh, LGBT activists say that I want a theocracy, which I don't, because I don't want to punish them or put them in jail for what they're doing. I want to, I want to see them converted. But I guarantee you, they'd love to see you and me punished or put in jail. You know what? We don't want a theocracy, but I guarantee you, they want a homoocracy. Yeah, they want a homoocracy. Homoocracy? Who says that? What does that mean? He made it up. He made it up. What does that mean? Homoocracy. That would be a government ruled simply by the gay people in society. So the elite class in a homoocracy is all gay people. Is that what it would be? I think I'm pretty sure that's what it would be. That is hilarious. <laughs> And he really thinks that that's like, like this is what the left is concerned with. Like I wake up every morning and I'm like, all right, how do we get in a position where we let the gays control all of us? Like a gay dictatorship. <laughs> I don't need to know your policies. I don't need to know any specifics. I don't need to know any details. Let's just try to, through force, have it so that gay people rule over all of us. They will be our gay overlords. (laughs) 
They're going to mandate that we wear uh, rainbow colors on Mondays. They're going to make us watch Will and Grace on Tuesdays. <laughs> They're going to make us listen to Elton John and George Michael on Wednesdays. <laughs> Come on, son. Homoocracy. He said homoocracy. And, th- like, this is something he actually thinks about. He's like, uh, the left, that's what they want. They want to... They want... They want to force us to watch it when men kiss men. That's what they want to do. They want to force us to watch that. I, for one, am outraged. I think that's so hot. I mean, it's so gross. Yeah, it's gross. (laughs) He said Obama, by celebrating the decision on the legalization of gay marriage that the Supreme Court ruled when they said this is equal protection under the law, He said that you allowed demonic spirits into the White House. Demonic spirits? (laughs) Demonic spirits of gayness. (laughs) Come on, dude. Like, how do you, like, you think you're a serious person when you say shit like this? You're just so unserious. You would think that somebody who's, like, super Christian would be, like, really concerned with, ah, we got a lot of homeless people in this country and I got to put a roof over their head. Or, like, Oh, there are people who are hungry out there, man. My whole goal is to feed all these people who are hungry. I mean, I have to, right? This is what Christians are all about. There's so much poverty and despair out there. I have to help them. You know, take up a cause that's, like, really noble. Like, oh, there's a lot of mental illness, and it goes untreated, and I want to be here to help them, and I'm going to get them the professional help that they need, and or, like, open a, you know, a food kitchen for, for people who are homeless and hungry or try to fight back against extreme poverty and or or campaign be an anti-war activist to campaign against war because Jesus was the ultimate pacifist and anti-war voice. But no, his his focus is I can't believe Pete Booty Judge is kissing his husband and wow, the left wants to make us into a homoocracy. And again, we're supposed to take this guy seriously. You know, it's interesting because the the one specific version of far-right politics that's on the decline is theocratic evangelical Christianity. And uh, you can see why. <laughs> because in today's day and age where people have like easy access to information with the Internet, this kind of stuff just doesn't fly anymore. Like the Pat Robertson stuff, it just doesn't fly anymore. Because even people who may have in a previous generation been convinced by stuff like this, now they just look at these guys for what they are, which is a bunch of goofballs who are in over their head and have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. Now let's make fun of uh, Trump's, Donald Trump's opponent. He has a a primary opponent now, believe it or not. So President Donald Trump has himself a Republican primary challenger. Um, I, for one, find this hilarious. Let's take a look at him on Morning Joe.
people that weren't captured, okay? Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh, I don't remember. And Mexico will pay for the wall. They moved on her like a You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. I love WikiLeaks. Uh, I know nothing about WikiLeaks. America has a choice. President Trump has a primary challenger. Yesterday, former two-term Massachusetts Governor William Weld officially announced that he will enter the race for the 2020 Republican presidential nomination. Weld is the first Republican to declare a bid to deny Trump a second term, but it's not the first time he has faced Trump, uh, Trump on the national stage. Weld ran for vice president on the 2016 Libertarian Party ticket headed by Gary Johnson. And William Weld joins us now from New Hampshire, which will hold the first primary of the 2020 nomination contest. Good to have you on the show this morning. Governor, thanks so much for being hey, with us. Obviously, you're engaged in a uh, uh, long shot uh, campaign, but we, of course, all remember back in 91 when George H.W. Bush uh, was in the high 80s and Bill Clinton decided to step into the race. So. Anything is possible, but still you're facing long odds. How do you break through to Republicans that they deserve better and that you're the candidate that can deliver to them the leadership they need? Well, I think uh, it's uh, one voter at a time, and I think it's good for the country to have somebody put the president to his proofs, as it were. Maybe ask him some why questions, like why do you think it's good to insult our military allies, why do you praise dictators? Is it because you wish the United States uh, was more dictatorial? I'm afraid that might be the case. Uh, why are you so angry about everything all the time? As was said earlier, everyone is fearful of the president's wrath. Uh, Bob Woodward's book was called Fear, and I think that seems to be the president's uh, strategy. I've said that I think this is a, a case of uh, the emperor's new clothes, and somebody had to raise their hand and say the emperor does have new clothes. So. You know, a year is a long time in uh, in politics, and if you look at history, uh, the New Hampshire primary has gone up and down, and the polls have gone up and down. So, I, you know, I'm going to camp out up here as well as other parts of the country and uh, make the case, and I think the case is very much there to be made. Dude, this is the biggest waste of time of a campaign I've ever seen. <laughs> Trump has over a 90% approval rating in the Republican Party. Where are you going to go, dog? Where are you going to go? They have this delusion in uh, among, like, elite Washington, D.C. Republicans, like, in the, in the elite establishment corporate circles. They have this delusion of, like, us regular Republicans are better than this. We're more classy. We're the real serious people. Our party's been hijacked by a mean man. But once we expose him for what he is, good sir, we'll be allowed back in power. No, you won't. Nobody's into you, man. Because what, what, a, like, what defines a guy like Bill Weld? Um, decorum politics. Civility politics. Wagging his finger at people over shit like mean tweets while he turns around and does all of the same shitty policies that Donald Trump does. 
That's what, why I can't stand these guys, because they think they're so much better than Donald Trump, but they agree with him on virtually everything, and they just want to do those same fucked up policies with like a smug smile on their face and a bunch of self-aggrandizing bullshit in their mind. And it's just, it's so obnoxious. It's like when Jeb Bush said in the interview with CNN, like, no, I actually agree with Trump on all of his policies. I just, you know, he's, he's got to be a leader to lead this country. Like, you got to calm the country down in times of crisis. So in other words, I don't like the mean tweets and the unhinged stuff, but I love all the policy stuff. In the same interview, Bill Weld goes on to say, um, oh, I agree with the president's tax cuts. So how about you step the fuck aside, Bill, dog? Because uh, maybe... Maybe people should get an actual choice, but to be fair, nobody's going to beat Donald Trump. Even if, like, you know, somebody who's like a libertarian Republican ran, like Rand Paul or something, he would get obliterated by Trump. They would all get obliterated by Trump. He is the Republican's id. He is exactly what they want because, listen, he agrees with them, and he's a king troll, and he's a fighter, and that's all they care about. That's all they care about. That's it. So King Troll, fighter, over 90% approval rating, and you think you're going to bring your, like, civility politics back into the fray? Nobody liked that, by the way. That's, like, this is the, uh, the ultimate establishment delusion, is that we were all down with, like, the I'm a serious person because I speak like a politician shit. Like, nobody cares. Nobody, no. Like, nobody thought, oh, isn't it so wonderful that while these assholes, like, screw the country and loot the treasury. They're all being all kind to each other and whatnot. No, we never thought that. So look at the stuff he laid out in his ad. The first thing he brings up is how the, the McCain thing, where he said, I like people who weren't captured, okay? So he brings up the McCain thing as if the entire country is like, we must protect John McCain's honor. No, that's only in Washington, D.C. You know, everybody else is like, next, let's move on here. Um, then he highlights how Trump is classless. The, he grabbed him by the pussy tape they ran. That broke just before the election, and it, he didn't lose. So why do you think, like, I'll just go back to this well, and it'll work? Um, and then they showed how he contradicted himself on WikiLeaks, as if that's going to make people go, like, I'm not, I'm not voting for this guy. Look at that. Oh, it's almost as if the president is an idiot and a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty obvious a long time ago, and they still voted for him. Um, and then... The thing I, I can't stand the most is the, like, the we're better than this America bullshit. It's like, no, what if we aren't? Like, don't get me wrong. We are better than the policies that these guys are pushing on us because we very clearly do not want these policies, and it, it's reflected in every poll. So we are better than the policies, but are we better than the fucking childish reality TV level, you know, fighting? Not at all. That, in fact, that is uniquely American, you can make the argument. Like, that is what we're all about, dog. The, the shitty fucking feuding and petty disagreements, and, like, that's us to our core. And I like how, like, the fact that he thinks this is, like, something he should lead with in his campaign, like, why does Donald Trump praise dictators and dislike our allies? As opposed to, what, Barack Obama, when he, you know, was buddy-buddy with Israel and buddy-buddy with Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, Trump is too! Trump is too! Like, George W. Bush supported uh, dictators, Obama supported dictators, and Trump supported dictators. They all support dictators. Trump put it on steroids, but yeah, they all support dictators. This idea that, like, before Trump, our presidents were against dictators. For decades, we've supported 73% of the world's dictatorships. So you're living in, like, fantasy land of, like, American exceptionalism and American mythology. You're not 
in reality, and you can't defeat Trump with this, like, head-up-your-ass, rah-rah America garbage, when he goes out there and his whole thing is make America great again. So, like, he's already got the Americana faux patriotism shit locked up. And your whole thing is just, why do you praise dictators and dislike our allies? Dislike our allies? What do you... I mean, why? Because he said some mean words to Justin Trudeau? Shut the fuck up. He's friends with Israel. He's friends with Saudi Arabia. He bolsters them all the time. Now, it would be interesting if you ran against that, like, ran, like, oh, I think we should sever our ties with Saudi Arabia. Well, goddamn, then you're really interesting. You'd still lose in a Republican primary, but at least I'd be interested by you. You're just a banal fucking nothing. Like, his whole campaign is, I will run and be just like Trump, but pretend to believe in civility and decorum. Now vote for me. Nobody's going to vote for you, because I got news for you especially the Republican base, one of the things they love about Trump is that he doesn't believe in the decorum and civility nonsense, and he rips the mask off. He says, yeah, this is what I am. Say something. Yeah, yeah, I said it. I think Mexicans are criminals and rapists. Yeah, I said it. I want to do a complete, total and complete shutdown of uh, Muslims coming into this country. Yeah, I said it. Well, you think the base secretly disagrees with that? No, they agree with that. So this idea of if I just go out there and I'm a nicer Trump, then I'll win, you're going to get destroyed. The over-under I'm putting for Bill Weld is at 4%, and I'm taking the under. How about you? 4% is the number, and I'm taking the under. Okay. So giant corporations are getting away with murder in the Trump era, and you're about to see the perfect example of that. At least 60 companies reported that their 2018 federal tax rates amounted to effectively zero or even less than zero on income earned on U.S. operations, according to an analysis released today by the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. The number is more than twice as many as ITEP found roughly per year on average in an earlier multi-year analysis before the new tax law went into effect. Wow. So Trump doubled the number of corporations paying zero. Among them are household names like technology giant Amazon.com and entertainment streaming service Netflix, in addition to global oil giant Chevron, pharmaceutical manufacturer Eli Lilly, and uh, farming and commercial equipment manufacturer Deere, John Deere and Company. Um, So on $79 billion in U.S. pre-tax income, these companies got away with dodging over $16 billion in taxes and blowing about a $20 billion hole in the deficit. So double the number of companies are paying zero in taxes now under Trump's new tax law compared to what it was before. It was already bad before. Now it's double. Now, by the way, some people might say, if, if they're a conservative, they might say, well, I, I'm not, I don't want them to pay taxes anyway, so I like this. Okay, that's a weird position to take, but nonetheless, let's, let's accept that premise for a second. Um, well, in 1952, the corporate tax accounted for 33% of all federal revenue. Today, and actually, to be fair, it's like two or three years ago this, when this data came out. Even though there, there are record-breaking corporate profits right now, corporate taxes only make up 9% of federal tax revenue. 
1952, it was 33% of federal tax revenue came from corporations. Today, it's less than 9%. Now, who do you think makes up that difference? Answer, regular people, middle-class people. Donald Trump's tax bill, 80% of the benefits went to the top 1% over a decade. All the tax relief for regular people is temporary. The tax relief for corporations and the rich is permanent. So this was a scam the entire time. And by the way, a lot of people, what they'll notice is they may have paid less in taxes up front, but then at the end of the year when they had to file, they ended up paying more than they would usually pay. So this is, they're screwing you. And they're screwing you, and they're doing it to serve corporations and the rich. And this is a perfect example of it right here. I mean, really, should Amazon pay zero in taxes when they make billions? I mean, you tell me. That strikes me as an obviously broken system. When you have working people paying their taxes, and sometimes they struggle to pay their taxes, but you have giant corporations dodging taxes, getting away with it, blowing a hole in the deficit, and also just shying away from accountability, where we need to get back to a place where that number is about the same as it was in 1952. Can you imagine if 35% of uh, all federal tax revenue came from corporations? That would take a giant burden off of regular people, and that's how it should be. Okay. All right, let's uh let's celebrate an anniversary here. I think you guys are going to like this. So we're approaching the one-year anniversary of Fox News fucking up and letting me on air. Um, But let's take a look at some of the clips from this Fox News appearance, and then we'll come back and discuss it. Kyle, should moderate Democrats worry about this far-left push? Uh, No, I think that the far-left is actually the way for Democrats to win, believe it or not. So when you look at the polls and you look at all the substantive policy issues, The American people overwhelmingly support Medicare for All, for example. They overwhelmingly support free college. They overwhelmingly want to end the wars. So when you go issue for issue, the American people are actually with the far left. And, in fact, President Trump, when he ran in 2016, stole some of those issues. He ran against the wars. He ran against the trade deals. So, if anything, Carl, you might might have a point. He also said he wasn't going to touch any of the entitlements, Social Security or, or, or Medicare. You make a good point in terms of where the Democratic Party is headed. Oh, let's say the wealthy 1% could pay, let's say, if they pay, let's just give them 45%. Kyle, uh, is that the future of the Democratic Party? I hope it's the future of the Democratic Party. Jeff Jeff Bezos has over $100 billion at the same time that we have 60,000 homeless veterans in this country and 400,000 homeless Americans. And the American people, again, to go to the polls, overwhelmingly want to raise taxes on the rich, overwhelmingly want to raise taxes on Wall Street corporations. I'm talking about 58% of Americans. So if your strategy is to defend the rich, by all means, go right ahead. We're still talking about radical French stuff abolishing ICE, abolishing law enforcement, 
you know, abolishing law enforcement, why are you making things up? That's made up. You just made that up. Who says abolish did law I? enforcement? Yes, you did. Well, you just made that is, up. Is Who said abolish law enforcement? Not, Nobody. You did. Is, excuse me. Is ICE not law enforcement? Uh, Customs and Border Protection already protects the border. ICE was created in 2003, and by the way, there are allegations that ICE literally doing Needless to say, I haven't been back on since. <laughs> to be fair to them, there was a separate show that invited me on. So when I went on, I, I met like one of the other show's producers or something, took me to the place where I would be sitting in the room where I would then engage in this segment. Like, this show is shot out of Washington, D.C. I was in New York City. So they took me to the room where I would be shooting out of there. And then I got into a conversation with the producer, and they were like, oh, cool, like, we'll have you on whatever the other show was. And I was like, yeah, yeah, no, no problem, sounds good. Um, so that producer had separately invited me on their show, but it fell through. Um, but I have not been invited back on this particular show. <laughs> I wonder why that is. So, yeah, that was fun. And and honestly, that was easy. That was easy. As Ken Klibenstein said, they had no idea what to do with me. <laughs> They're used to having on lefties and just like, okay, um, now sit there and we're going to railroad you. And you're supposed to go like, yeah, you know, I would like to have my stapler back and maybe I would like to make it so that... I, I, I agree with you on most of what you're saying, but I would like to maybe slightly disagree and tell you that I don't think it's a very good thing if you say mean things to people, but I, I, I'm going to now lay down and let you destroy me. I don't do that, <laughs> which is obvious that I don't do that. So Progressive Voice brought up, you know, he's been doing this a lot recently, having the conversation, having the discussion. Who's the best left-wing debater? And he does, he's done polls with myself, Jank Uger, Sam Cedar, David Pakman. He's done separate polls where it's been myself. He, he's included Destiny and some others, if I'm not mistaken. Now, I got nothing but love for all those guys. And, in fact, I know most of them personally. And they're good dudes. Um, and, you know, I think there's a case to be made that they all know what they're doing. They're all pretty, pretty solid at this whole debate thing. But I'm here to say, we really have in this conversation, son. Now, Progressive Voice, his whole thing is like, bro, you don't meet the minimum threshold to even be considered the best debater. Quality and quantity are separate concepts. That's not the same thing. Like, you can be, you can be the greatest, but not often. Like, Tiger Woods plays in fucking fewer tournaments per year than every other top golfer. And it's been like that for most of his career, actually. Does that mean, like, bro, he hasn't met the minimum threshold to be considered? So, I mean, come on, bro. No, that's just a bad point. So, um, I'm here to say there is no debate. You can all stop debating. We all know what the answer is. And if you don't believe me, you know... Go ask Razor Fist. <laughs> Go ask him. Well, actually, you know what? Don't ask him because he's still in deep, deep, deep denial about what happened. But, yeah. Um, 
every now and then I make an appearance for one of these types of things, and I do a Mortal Kombat Flawless Victory, and then I go back to my lair, and I relax and eat potato chips and uh, bask in the glory of what I just did. So <laughs> the Internet can stop debating. We all know what the answer is. Okay, let's go to uh, Michelle Bachman. We're almost done with the show here. We got Michelle Bachman, and then we'll have Rick Wiles, and then we're done, though. Where is Michelle Bachman? I can't find the clip. <laughs> no, but for real, I can't find the clip. Where is it? Bernie, E.W. Jackson, me on Fox News. Bernie again, Tulsi, Andrew Yang, Shitty Fox News Questions, Bill Weld. I don't have it. Fuck. Okay, well, I'm just going to pull it up on Twitter because I refuse to not do this story. I absolutely must do this story. Okay, here we go. Ready? So Michelle Bachman is back, and she weighed in on the Trump presidency on right-wing religious radio. And this was so insane that, I'm not going to lie, it made me miss her a little bit. And I will say to your listeners, in my lifetime, I have never seen a more biblical president than I have seen in Donald Trump. He has so impressed me with what he's done. And we haven't even talked about Israel, well, what he's done to, to advance Israel. We will. We're so he there. is highly biblical. And I would say to your listeners, we will in all likelihood never see a more godly biblical president again in our lifetimes. So we need to be not only praying for him, we need to support him, in my opinion, in every possible way that we can. I don't even, like, really? Do I have to do commentary in response to this? It's just, that's just adorable. That's so hilarious. But I love it at the same time. Like, it's just beautiful. It's so beautiful. (laughs) He's the most biblical. He's the most godly. He is like a philandering, self-obsessed, narcissistic child. I mean, how many, like, now, to be clear, I don't really care about this story, but it's important in the context of what Michelle Bachman is saying here. Like, the whole Stormy Daniels thing, the Karen McDougal thing, which isn't even brought up anymore, So he had a long-term affair with this uh, woman named Karen McDougal. She's given all the details of that. Stormy Daniels, he promised, like, oh, you know, I'm going to let you on the Celebrity Apprentice or whatever the fuck he was saying. And then he had sex with her, and she's got, you know, disparaging things to say about him and whatnot. Uh, The the tape where, oh, I grabbed him by the pussy, I don't even wait. So, like, this dude is a fucking, you know, malignantly malignantly horny, fucking obese, self-aggrandizing, narcissistic buffoon. I mean, just, just what he does with his hair. 
is enough to tell you, like, man, this dude is hanging on for dear life to, you know, what he thinks are youthful qualities. And for this, like, that is, if I had to come up with, make in a lab the polar opposite of, of a Jesus-like character, it would be Donald Trump. Like, the polar opposite. The, Jesus is like the, you know, all I care about is others and peace and love and being kind to everybody. And I'm like an uber hippie who's just looking to do the right thing. Trump is always looking to do the wrong thing, whatever the thing that's good for him. And it doesn't matter if it's fucking bad for everybody else. And he's cheating on his wife and he's fucking... Now when you bring in actual political stuff like bombing eight different countries and trying to topple the Venezuelan government and fucking pulling out of the Iran deal and pushing a war there and just giving Israel fucking, you know, territory where they could just steal it from Palestinians and steal the Golan Heights from Syria. And I mean, in every conceivable way, giving the rich more money, screwing over the poor, he's the opposite of Jesus. But because today evangelical Christianity manifests as just like a religious fundamentalist adherence to Republican ideology, because of that, all of a sudden he's the most biblical, he's the most godly. This man is the most godly. Because, again, the real adherence from people like Michelle Bachman, it's like that Republican orthodoxy, to them, is the equivalent of like, this is what is godly, and this is what is Jesus-like, and this is what is doing the bidding of the Almighty. That's how she views it. So it's, just, it's always funny to see that because they just never stop and think, well, what about all the parts of the Bible I'm ignoring that are supposed, like, I'm supposed to care about peace and being anti-war and feeding the poor? Like, what about all that? Doesn't give a fuck about that. Doesn't care at all. It's so weird. Like, can other, can some other right-wingers who maybe are not fundamentalist Christians, do you see how silly this looks? I don't know. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But either way, Michelle Bachman, please come back. I want more of these segments. They're so glorious. All right, final story of the day. Rick Wiles, y'all. It is time, it is time for Rick Wiles to scare the shit out of all of us. So Rick Wiles is a favorite uh, here at Secular Talk and the Kyle Kalinske Show. Um, He is a far-right televangelist, and uh, he's hilarious. So Right Wing Watch got a video here of him going on one of the creepiest rants of all time, where he is legitimately... I've never seen him smile, ever, okay? And I've covered, like, maybe a dozen segments with him in it, maybe even 15 or so. What you're going to see here is a man who is genuinely excited and giddy at the thought of people being dragged to hell to experience excruciating pain and torture forever. Take a look. God is coming someday. Yes. He's, he's not coming. Jesus had a whip one time, but the next time he's coming with a flamethrower. Yes. He's going to be the biggest flamethrower mankind has ever seen. He's going to torch this planet. Yes, judge the nations. Absolutely. Torch this planet. He's going to burn it all. And these, these thugs are going to run into caves and try to hide from God. And they're going to beg for the rocks to fall on them and crush them. But it doesn't matter. They can't hide from God. He's coming back. He's, he's seeking them. He's coming to get them. He's coming to get these people. Uh, he's got two groups of people he wants. He wants his children who love him, and he wants to get these people. 
Okay? He's seen it all. He has seen it all. Wow. He's coming to get him. <laughs> vengeance. It's vengeance. He's coming for him. Okay? Um, and not just here in the United States. This has been going on for thousands of years. Right. All these guys that have been thugs, all right, they're all going to get it on that day. Because you know what? The dead come up out of the graves. I'm snatching the dead up. I'm telling you what, these, these thugs, these criminals, these, these politicians, and all these guys through thousands of years, you, can you imagine the look on their face? They've been dead for 3,000 years. All of a sudden, they pop out of their grave, and there's an angel standing there in front of them, and the angel grabs them like a lizard grabbing a cricket. <laughs> <laughs> You're coming with me. It's over. Buddy, you're going to the, you're going to Beelzebub's barbecue pit. <laughs> it's on 101 Main Street in hell. What? <laughs> oh, that was funny. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm not sure what my favorite part of that is. Um, I think the hype man made it hilarious. Uh, because he's ranting, going on and on about, just giddy about people going to hell, and the hype man's like, wow, there you go, Rick, wow, man, wow. Um, And then the other uh, thing I like is when Rick Wiles gets, like, overjoyed, he's like, he's coming to get these people. He's coming to get these people. He's like, yes, drag them off to eternal damnation and suffering. Yes! <laughs> People who don't agree with me should burn in hell forever. <laughs> I'm a loving Christian. I'm a loving man. <laughs> this is the same guy who the last segment we covered of him, he was whining about, like, why there are so many Christians who support Ben Shapiro. And it's like, well, dude, he's a much more convincing snake oil salesman and charlatan. Like, he's repackaging uh, standard Republican ideology by talking fast and having, like, you know, um, half-baked cockamamie arguments that are somewhat convincing to people who don't know the specifics. Okay, that's his whole thing. You're just fucking giddy over people going to hell. <laughs> like you're just excited about the damnation of people. Every time we cover a Rick Wild segment, there's always just this fucking ob- obvious undertones and overtones and all kinds of tones you'd want to have about like God is wonderful. I love God and He's so real and I want to serve Him. Yes, serve Him, Almighty One. Oh, you're so precious. And you shall burn my enemies. But he really seems to believe this shit. Like, he's laughing about it. He's going to fucking Beelzebub's barbecue and shit. It's hard for me to, like, imagine being this dude. Just try to get into his mind and in his... I mean, he is... He's a perfect example of the, like, the actual fundamentalist... Christian Taliban. I think in his heart of hearts, if it came down to it, like if he got to push a button and say, we will bring back the death penalty for homosexuality, he would do it. Now you might not, to be fair, like you might not know anything about Rick Wiles and he came across this clip. 
And you might say, hey, Kyle, that's not fair. Oh, it's beyond fair. You go back and you look at the Secular Talk Library and all the, all the um, segments that we've done covering Rick Wiles. There's a chance he actually did a segment where he flat out said that, for all I know. I don't remember. My memory's not that great. But, like, that's the, this is, that's the kind of dude he is. That's the kind. He is a literalist to his core, and that is an update that's coming at a weird time. <laughs> Remind me later on that one. Okay. Anyway, where was I? Um, yeah, no, that's the kind of guy that he is. Why is the bottom thing not going away? Now this is just being weird. There we go. That's better. That's the kind of guy that he is. He's the kind of guy who would implement his insanely draconian version of Christianity. He's a a theocrat to his core, and he would absolutely set up a government where he forces everybody to abide by his interpretation of his religion. And as you can tell, it's not the most lovely interpretation. Okay. And that'll do it, baby. That's the show. Love you guys. We will talk to you soon. Everybody enjoy uh, your upcoming weekend. Kyle, out.